Well, good morning, everybody. We are this week, next week, and the week after, and then we're done with this whole next chapter business, this series that we've been working our way through. The next chapter, embracing what God is about to do in our lives. Let's see if I can get the tech to keep up with me today. Okay, so I've always wanted to go to a masquerade party. Has anyone been to one of those? Like one of those? Right, you wear the mask? Mike, of, of course, Mike Ori's been to a masquerade party. That makes perfect sense. Um, I always thought that the masquerade parties would be so much fun because I'm a textbook introvert. So the, the chance to go to a party and put on a mask so that no one knows who you are, because there are so few six foot six people in the world, so your identity is completely obscured by wearing this little thing over your eyes, and you can actually be free to be who you are instead of trying to meet people's expectations based on what they know of you. And just the, the, it's so complicated being, you know, human. So I always thought masquerade parties would be fun, but we don't typically walk around wearing masks all the time. But it'd be nice to, I think. Even just to hide your eyes a little bit. The eyes are the windows to the soul, right? You can tell so much about how someone's doing if you dare to make eye contact with them. Sorry, Janelle. You can tell whether they're exhausted because their eyes are drooping or, or whether they're excited and happy because they're bright or whether they're just hollow and you know they've had a really hard season. Uh, so we might not wear masks like this. I do like masks like this though because they accomplish pretty much the same thing. A good pair of mirrored shades can go miles as far as just hiding from the real world and making sure that nobody knows what's going on inside your head or your heart. Making sure nobody actually gets to know you. Why do we hide? We're wearing masks. Whether they're literal masks to hide our eyes or just masks that keep us from getting close to people around us. From being real with people around us. Why do we hide behind masks? And what's worse is that church becomes a place where everyone comes and they put on a mask to come to church. This is not a masquerade party. And yet, it's what we do because you, you show up at church and you think, oh, look at all these tidy, shiny people. They seem to all have it together, so I'd better pretend that I have it all together too. It's just not the way the church is meant to be. Church, because honestly, this is how many of us go through life. Right? We're going through life putting on masks to try and keep others at a distance. To hide from others. To hide from God. To hide even from ourselves. Why do we do this? The phrase, the questions that are going right underneath the surface. Things like, well, if you knew who I really am, well, would you still value me? If you knew who I really am, would you still like me? Would you still spend time with me? Or if you knew what I've done. If you know my story. If you know my past. If you know what I've been through, what's been done to me, or even some of the decisions that I've made. See, I think we, we hide behind masks because this is terribly, terribly risky. To live with authenticity in a world that is quick to judge, 
The world is not a safe place. So masks, we put on masks to try and protect ourselves. And in many ways, it's because of what we lived through in the past, because of the experiences, the, the, the formative elements of our lives that have made us sort of the sum total of who we are. And in many ways, it's our past that claims a disproportionate role in defining who we are. And so we say, let's cover all that up. Let's put a mask on it and pretend that everything's okay. And then let's go to church. And in so many ways, our present and even our future is held hostage by our past. And I believe that the Lord has a word for us this morning. And the Lord might have a word very specifically for you this morning. We're going to turn to His Word, the Bible, and we're going to discover that your past cannot disqualify you from the next chapter of life with God. I wish I could find words that could say that strong enough. Your past cannot disqualify you from the next chapter of life with God. When we are doing life with God, there is no need for masks. And there's a gentleman I want to introduce you to in the Scriptures this morning who's going to show us this. His name is Levi. And I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, verses 27-32. through 32, If you are using a Black Pew Bible, page 836. And I am going to introduce you to a dude. Named Levi. Luke 5, 27-32. We find these words. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up left everything and followed Him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at His house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to His disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is the word of the Lord. Levi, he's our guy today. Let's get to know Levi a little bit, because he is a person with a past. He is someone who has issues, we'll say. I mean, this is how our text begins this morning. Verse 27, it jumps right in. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector. I want you to know how loaded that term is in the Bible. That is not just, oh, so he works for the IRS. There's a lot more to this whole idea of being a tax collector in the Scriptures. And you need to understand that if you want to understand Levi's backstory. If you want to understand where he's coming from. If you want to understand Levi and what makes him who he is, you have to understand some of the backstory, some of his past. For example, I mean, just to get into it a little bit, uh, Roman taxes 
in 10 seconds or less. When Rome, Rome had some money, they had some wealth, and they did that because every time they conquered something, they imposed taxes and tributes, and so the money and wealth of a conquered nation flowed back to Rome. So Roman taxes, uh, they were on property, on land. Every person of taxable age was taxed. You know, in uh, the birth narratives of Jesus, right? Where Caesar Augustus says, I'm going to have a census. Everyone has to go to their hometown to be counted. That's not because they care how many people there are. They want taxes. The, the culture of first century Rome on importing goods into a region. If you have those goods in the region and you're exporting them, you get taxed. Pretty much anything you can think of, they could tax it. Actually, that doesn't sound that different from today. <laughs> but some scholars estimate up to 40% of all of their income would be sent to Rome. And then there were what we might call Jewish taxes, and I put taxes in quotation marks, because it was still sort of a percentage of income that they were required to give as the people of God. You know, the annual half-shekel temple tax that they had to make, there was tithing, 10%, and then all the feasts and sacrifices, the people were constantly... So even if you just add the tithe to the tax, you're up to 50 half your income is right out the door again. And then you got to file your taxes. How does a first century person file their taxes? Because you can't just fill out the old 1040 easy online and hit send, nor could Rome accept electronic payments. Someone had to go out and collect the taxes from the people. So, and this was actually interesting, Rome would auction off the right to collect taxes from a region to the highest bidder. And so these wealthy, we'll call them investors, would participate in this auction. They would pay Rome what they were expecting in taxes out of pocket. And then they would have the authority to go into the region and to collect the taxes that they just paid out to Rome to recover their expenses and make a little profit along the way. A little profit along the way is sort of the key to understanding what's happening here. So the problem is, is this. Tax collectors enter the scene. Now Rome has already been paid by this point, right? They've auctioned off the taxation expenses of this one region. So Rome has got their money, so they don't care what happens after that. The publicans now have the contract to collect taxes in this region, and there's really no rule. And they can do whatever they want. Any money collected over and above what they have paid to Rome is theirs to keep. That's the profit. Which means the system was rife with corruption. These people were notorious for collecting not just a little bit more than what they owed Rome, but a whole lot more. And they could demand it with Roman military backing. So anyone who refused to pay had to come up against the might of Rome. This drew all the wrong types of people. It drew the selfish, the greedy, the abusive, Machiavellian characters who would prey on the poor to make themselves rich at others' expense. The Old Testament is full of places where God basically says, don't do that. But by the time we get to our buddy Levi, we need to understand what's going on. He is the worst of them all. He's not just a tax collector though. He's also a Jew. Which means he's supposedly one of God's chosen people, yet he's exploiting his own people 
and getting rich off their hardship. This is why in the New Testament, especially around Jesus' time, tax collectors were the dirt of the dirt. They were the dirt between the toes of dirt. They're traitors to God's people, legitimately hated. And if you look through like all the dialogues that Jesus has with and, and all the lists of all the worst sinners, you know, it's, it's, oh, there's prostitutes and gluttons and drunkards and sinners and even tax collectors. Like it's this hyperbolic, horrible, quintessential, like the worst thing you could possibly be out of all of it is a tax collector. So I wonder if Levi was wearing any masks, hmm? What do you think being treated like that, being seen that way does to a person? What do you think that does to a person's soul knowing you're that hated? Knowing that people, when they're walking down the street and they see you, they cross and walk on the other side. What hope do you think there is for a next chapter in the life of a tax collector when this is your past? When this is who you are? I wonder what masks Levi wears to protect himself even. To hide from others behind greed. I'll just focus on making more and more money so I don't have to care. Or maybe at a minimum, something like indifference. I'm just not even going to care. I, I, if I can just turn off the part of me that feels compassion, <laughs> then I can keep getting through each day. Or maybe it's callousness as your heart is indifferent day after day after day and gets this nice thick skin on it so you never feel anything again. Or maybe he hides behind intimidation like classic playground bully. When he feels insecure about the way the world treats him, he takes it out on those who have less power than himself. This is straight off the playground behavior. Maybe it's cruelty. That he hides his own feelings behind being cruel to others. Or I wonder if there's like a fear. Like, how did I get myself into this? How do I get myself out? I wonder if he felt trapped in the profession saying... I, I know I shouldn't be doing this, but this is the only thing I know how to do. If, if I were to leave this profession, how in the world am I supposed to make ends meet? So I'll just keep on going. Or even shame. To the point where he has sort of internalized that which he does. And now that's his identity. And he says, there's no hope for me at all. Forget it. I'll just keep doing what I'm doing. I mean, we can masks, man, there's so many different kinds of masks we can wear. Ornate, beautiful, very stripped down and, and simple. I wonder what masks Levi was wearing. Because he was definitely a person with a past. But let me be clear. Your past cannot disqualify you from the next chapter of life with God. This story gets crazy. And we don't notice it because we're familiar with it. Or we've heard it before. Or we know that Jesus loves everybody, so He's probably going to love a tax collector. But you've got to understand how depraved and hated Levi was before you can understand how beautiful Jesus is in this moment. Because not only is Levi a man with a past, but he's also got a present because Jesus shows up on the scene. After this, it says Jesus went out. And what did Jesus do? The first thing Jesus does, He sees. He sees a tax collector. 
Right? Remember, most Jews would have crossed the street to avoid him, maybe turned around altogether and not gone that way because there was a tax collector in his booth down there. They certainly would have looked at him or made eye contact. They wouldn't have interacted with him at all. But Jesus saw Levi. I wonder what Jesus saw. A man with so many masks on. Trying to hide what in all likeliness is so much hurt. And so much guilt and shame. I kind of picture Levi being a man who's actually stacked masks upon masks upon masks upon masks. And Jesus is looking at them going, I see through all of it. And I see you. And what does Jesus say? I, I want you to even just picture that scene, right? Picture the dusty Palestinian roadside and, and this group coming with Jesus as they're all walking down the road. And then, oh, there's the tax collector's booth. And so his disciples are like, we'll go this way. And they start heading in the other direction. And the, uh, this herd of people starts moving through the dusty street this way until they realize Jesus hasn't come with them. Right? Jesus is standing alone over here looking at all those people going that way. And I just picture him just staring at Levi. He looks back. Looks back to Levi. He's like, give me a sec. And he crosses the street to Levi's side. He walks over to Levi and addresses him. Jesus, Jesus really hasn't even said anything yet. And he's conferring dignity and worth by making eye contact and crossing a street. At least in my imagination, that's how it goes. Jesus saw Levi. And then what does he say? Follow Me. Wow. Follow Me. He calls Levi to leave everything and to become a follower of Jesus. To leave his riches. To leave his tax collection scheme. Or maybe the bigger ask was to leave his masks and his armor and his self-protection. Even as we're moving through the text and we haven't gotten yet to how Levi responds, we see clearly that Jesus is interested in him. He's, he's, Levi is seen by Jesus. He is loved by Jesus. And he is called by Jesus. But wait! What about his past? Isn't that like this giant elephant in the room? Tax collector! What do we do with that? Well, I think Jesus is showing us pretty clearly that your past is not big enough to stop whatever Jesus wants to do in you. Your past cannot disqualify you from the next chapter of life with God. So Jesus says, follow Me. And what does Levi do? He says he got up, left everything, and followed Him. Levi got up, left everything, and followed Him. Can you imagine the courage that must have taken? I mean, how quick does it take to read that? Gone. Now settle into that. Get a big old armchair out and sit down in this slime. Levi got up from his booth. Imagine what people were thinking when he did that. Jesus, the teacher, goes over to talk. I'll bet he's going to tear a strip off that Levi. I'll bet Jesus is going to scold him. I'll bet you... Wait, what? Wait, Levi's getting up. What's he doing? And the murmur going through the crowd. Like, what's happening? Where's, where's Levi going? Did Jesus insult him? What's happening? And he just steps away from his booth towards Jesus. I picture a hug. Like I just picture that moment where it's just like, boom, like a good man hug, like just 
And then he follows him. Because Jesus has just treated Levi differently than any other religious leader that he's ever interacted with. We have to do, and then Levi throws a banquet for Jesus at his house and a large crowd of, oh, there they are again, tax collectors and others eating with them. See, the beautiful part of this story is not just that we see this portrait of Levi who has this, this very difficult past to overcome, but he also is a man who's got a present. He meets Jesus and everything changes. But even better than that, that Levi is also a person with a future. He's a person who has a next chapter coming. Right? How does this work? How can a man like that have a future with Jesus? And I want to pause right there and ask you, who have you thought about in the last month where you've said, there's no way someone like that would ever follow Jesus? You've got a neighbor, you've got a coworker, and you're, you know I'm supposed to be praying for them, I'm supposed to, you know, I want what's best for them, but there's no way someone like that would ever come to know Jesus. And if that's you, just go home this afternoon and read this text over and over and over again. How can someone like that have a future with Jesus? Have a next Chapter And the religious leaders of Jesus' day had the same question because they were kind of outraged. Verse 30, But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who began to their sect complained to His disciples. This is no mere curiosity question. Hey, by the way, they're upset by this. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? That's the question. Why do you do this? Why... Why do you spend time? These people are the lowest of the low. They don't matter. They're worse than people who don't matter. People who don't matter are at least neutral. These are negative category people. How could you do this? And Jesus' answer, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous. Turns out there are none but sinners to repentance. What is Jesus saying? No perfect people allowed. That's the rule. And this, isn't this what we see over and over again throughout like all of the Bible? Right? Think of some of the people we've even studied recently. We've got King David. And we're like, oh, King David, the best king Israel's ever had. Well, except for that whole adultery thing, which was most likely non-consensual. Oh, and the first degree murder based on premeditation. And that that was one of his best friends, one of his mighty men that he murders. Like, talk about a past. Where's your future there? Or, or someone like Moses. We talked about Moses' insecurity before, but don't forget he also killed an Egyptian in cold blood and fled into the wilderness and hid for 30 years. Where do you go from there? Or you look at someone like Peter who denied Jesus and then denied him again and then denied him again. And you say, where, where, where do you go from that? Or I think of someone like Rahab. A prostitute. Potentially running an entire brothel because she had this sweet spot in the walls of Jericho where she had a roof and everything that she could go up on. And yet, when Joshua came in to take over the land, she met the Lord. Sheltered the spies. An 
Oh, that's right. I think her name is actually in the lineage of the Messiah. Or even someone like the Apostle Paul, formerly Saul, who was persecuting the early church and holding the cloaks of the men who were stoning Stephen to death. Approving of the act. You know what I mean? So I'm saying Levi is not the, 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 extent, the, the, what's the word I'm looking for? Exception that proves the rule. Thank you for whoever said that. He's the rule. This is how God works. He takes people with these crazy stories that the world looks at and says you're worthless and Jesus crosses the street and says, get up. Follow me. Because I have a next chapter in store for you. This is what Jesus does. This is actually the heart of the Gospel. Right? We are all sinful, broken, even rebellious people. We are alienated from God, but Jesus came and said, yeah, I'm just not okay with you staying there. I cannot leave you separated from God. Not on my watch. So He takes the consequences of our sin on Himself. He dies on the cross, atones for our sin, and then says, yeah, but not even that's enough. Then He rises from the dead, and in His new life, He offers us new life that we can know God again. I mean, this is why we exist as a church. We celebrate who Jesus is and what He's done. And we do it again and again, Sunday after Sunday. And we sing the songs and we preach from the Word because it's why we're gathered. It's why we're here right now. And this account here in Luke chapter 5 is Jesus' battle cry. Your past is no match for My redemption, He says. Your past cannot disqualify you from God's next chapter in your life. Jesus even tells a story later in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, to some who were confident in their own righteousness. And those who looked down on everyone else, Jesus told them this parable. So, two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank You that I am not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice, twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector, Jesus said, he wouldn't even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus goes on to say, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus says, I have not come to call the righteous. I'm here to call sinners to repentance. And repentance is the path from your past into God's future through what Christ has done. We are a people with a past. Do you see any part of your story in Levi's story? If you find yourself distancing yourself from Levi going, well, at least I'm not that bad. Um, just be careful, we'll say. At least I'm not a prostitute or a liar, or a thief, or even a tax collector, 
I think Jesus has some harsh words to those who might adopt that posture. We all have a past. Some of us have sinned greatly and can't seem to find the way home. Some of us have been sinned against. And there's a a false shame that keeps us from coming home. We are both sinful and broken. We are also wounded. And Jesus sees our past and steps out into this middle of the street and He crosses over to meet us. And He says, I see you and I love you and you matter to God. You are more than your past. We are a people with a present right now, loved by God, His treasured possession. We are not the people that God avoids because He's embarrassed. We are the people that God loves beyond measure. And we also are a people who have a next chapter. A future. The problem is the path to that future is often really hard because it asks us to take off the mask. We put the masks there though to hide. So we don't want to take the masks off. We put the masks on to hide from God Himself. We put the masks on to hide from each other. We put the masks on half the time to hide from ourselves. And what Jesus is saying here is there is no need for a mask. And there's no need for a mask because your past cannot disqualify you from what God wants to do next. So the question is, how do we take off a mask? How do we do that? It sounds good. I want to, I want to pull a Levi. Alright? How do we do that? Because knowing it is easy. We can sit here and say, okay, yeah, no, I get that. That makes sense. I should get rid of my masks and, and be honest before God and have Him deal with my past. And through repentance and humility, I can step forward into whatever God has because Jesus actually loves me. That's great. But then tomorrow comes and you go to work or you're back to your family or you're with your neighbors and presto, all the masks go right back on. How do you get rid of the masks? Especially if it's a mask you've been wearing a long time. Those seem to like get fused to your face and taking them off hurts a lot. It's terrifying to let your guard down. It's terrifying to be honest with yourself and with God. And it's terrifying to be real with people around you. So how do you do it? And here's where I would love to say, well, you do it in three easy steps. First, but that's not the way life works, right? Because every mask is going to be different. Every mask is going to have a different way of having it come off. And only God knows the masks you're wearing. And only God can give you the kind of specificity to say, here's what you need to do to move past this. To take this mask off and to let me in. But I will say that apart from that specificity that only God can provide, this is part of what it means to be a church. Sure, there's no one path. Every journey is different. Every mask comes off differently. And even at a different time, it all depends on the mask. But taking off that mask is a process that can begin here. Among these people. Your family. 
you are here in church dangerously close to worshiping the one true God in spirit and truth. Oh, that truth part can be tricky. We Oftentimes we're like, oh, the truth of who Jesus is and what He's done. Right. It's also the truth of who I am and who I allow myself to become. This place, they call it a sanctuary. How appropriate. A safe place to peel back the edge of a mask. The church has to be a safe place for honesty before the Lord. So when you're here, there's almost an anonymity that exists. Well, when we're up and we're singing, we're standing and the worship team is leading, there's a place there where no one else can see you, where you can worship and you can peel back the corner of a mask and just see, what does God do with that? Does He rush in to judge us? Or does He rush in to forgive? My money's on the ladder. But it's, I mean, you guys know church is not just a Sunday morning thing. We also encourage every one of you to be part of a small group. Why do we do that? Because a small group of people who meet week in and week out, who get to know each other, you, you begin over time, if you put the investment into those relationships, that they become your people. You might never have chosen them, but they still end up being your people. You might never have said, that's the person I want to spend every Thursday with, but they still end up being your people. And those are the people who begin to know you. And as you peel off the other corner of the mask, you find, did they rush in to judge me? Or did they also demonstrate the grace of God in welcoming me even without my mask? Now, there's still risk there, people. You know that. Our small groups are not perfect, nor are the people in them. There will be bumps and bruises along the way, absolutely. But there will also be healing and growth and honesty. You can be you somewhere in the world. It goes, we also encourage, and a number of you are doing it, to just meet up one-on-one or in groups of three for discipleship relationships where you just meet like every Wednesday before work. And it, it's less about, here, let's do this whole Bible study thing. And it's more about, pray for me about this because the Lord is working on this in my life right now. And a chance to actually do life alongside people. And now you're talking about just two or three of you that you can actually be fully real with. And that's a place where you can confess sin. That's a place where you could admit failure. That's a place where you can admit that you don't have everything it takes in yourself to live a tidy, shiny life. None of us do. And that might be the safest of places to test what life might be like mask-free. I propose to you that the church, not the building, not the service, all of you, the church. I'd even go bigger. Capital C, the church. The church across Cape Ann. The church across the country. The church across the world. The capital C church. God's church is the safest place to peel back a mask. And where God can take our past and say, that's got nothing on my grace. Which means though, that we'd actually better be the church too. Because for every person back a mask, there's six other people having brownies in the living room who had better demonstrate grace in that moment. 
and who would better not be obtuse enough when someone is vulnerable enough in our community to say, look, I'm going to let you guys in a little bit. If we meet that vulnerability with judgment, with criticism, or even with shock and surprise, we are undermining the very Gospel of Jesus. We have to be... We are the sanctuary. We as a people have to be the safe place where we can be real with one another. Lest we be judgmental Pharisees looking down our noses at those sinners over there. Which brings us back to Levi. Oh, that's right. We were talking about him, weren't we? How does Levi's story end? What was the future that Jesus had in store for him. Well, actually, um, God uses Levi in a pretty cool way. You might not have recognized him as we have been using what some scholars argue is his Hebrew name. But in the other Gospel accounts, he's been given a different name. Some think it's his Greek name. You might have heard of it. His name is Matthew. And he wrote a little book called The Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew. Think about that. You know, without that book, we wouldn't know about Joseph's angelic encounter or the visit of the Magi. Without Matthew, we wouldn't have the fullness of the Beatitudes. Without Matthew, we wouldn't know that Jesus said, come to me. Yeah, you take it. (laughs) All you who are weary and burdened, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. This is the God who says take off the mask. This is the God who says it is safe to do so because I love you. Without Matthew, we wouldn't know that Pilate tried to wash his hands of Jesus' crucifixion and that they posted guards at the tomb. Without Matthew, we wouldn't have the great commission, the language that we love so much. Where Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. For lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. Matthew walked and talked with Jesus. And he wrote it all down so that we might know Jesus too. Wait, 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 wait. This guy? He was a tax collector. Yeah. Which goes to show if God can do it with Levi and the result is Matthew, I wonder what new name God is waiting to give you. Your past cannot disqualify you from the next chapter of life with God. If there's hope for a tax collector named Levi, and if we take off our mask, if we let people in to see the real us, and if we let God in to see the real us, which is just a pretense, people. I'm pretty sure He can see us anyways. But if we try to follow Jesus together as the real us, I wonder what God might do. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we thank You.
that You are the God who can overcome our past. You are the God who can transform it. You are the God who changes names and provides new identities. You're the God who takes the lowest of the low and elevates them to be cherished and loved as children of the Most High. Thank You. Thank You for being that kind of God. A God who is holy, who is righteous, who has standards, who who's given us an entire law that we might know what it means to please You and honor You and bring glory to Your name. But thank You for not administering that law with brutality or harshness or judgmentalism. You are the judge, but You are a gracious judge. And the penalty for our sin has been paid by the blood of Jesus, so thank You that we get You. Thank You for wanting us. In spite of our stories, in spite of where we've come from, Thank You for being a God who's calling us into where we're going with You. We love You so much. In Your name. Amen.